Oh, welcome back, everyone. You're listening to episode 50. Yes, episode 50 of Double Hot Beat, where we take the pulse of the beer and brewing scene. I'm James, a home brewer and beer enthusiast. And I'm Shannon, a beer intermediate. This week, we are wicked excited to have special guests with us today, Mandy Neglich, a journalist, NHC gold medal home brewer, certified taster writer for Vine Pear Magazine, and advanced Cicerone. But some of you may know her better by her Instagram, Beers with Mandy. Welcome, Mandy. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for having me. I love the uh, the intro of home brewer and beer enthusiast. I feel like <laughs> I need to adopt that instead of that long list of uh, things. Short and sweet. That's, that's just for yeah. people who don't have as many titles as you do that are just that you know, we're very novice in that aspect. So I guess it's short and sweet, but you know, maybe someday we'll get that, that long. He just wants to sound fancy is what he wants. Oh yeah. I think it's fancy. I like it. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Mandy. Uh, just to get us started, started off, why don't you go into kind of how you got into home brewing and what it means to be an advanced Cicerone? Yeah. I mean, I think I actually came into homebrewing through cooking just because I, I made everything, you know, myself when I was younger, I was really into baking and cooking everything, like even my own bread. And then I was like, well, if I bake everything else, you know, I make my own cocktails. Why, why am I not making this beer? Um, <laughs> so I started getting into that. Uh, and it was actually homebrewing that led me to Cicerone. I won a gold medal in 2016 at NHC, which you guys mentioned. And um, from there, Cicerone actually had like a booth at the conference <laughs> when I went to their little like Cicerone happy hour and got, I just had never realized you could pursue beer in the way that like people in restaurants like Psalms pursue wine. And mm -hmm. so it kind of set off from there and I got deeper and deeper into it. And uh, yeah, lots of study and lots of enthusiasm about beer later. Uh, here I am. So in terms of studying, does that mean a lot of drinks that you've been, had to drink <laughs> as part of that or a little bit of both of a lot of testing and um, reading up and research like you would at school just for those uh, listening that might be interested in doing it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a nice mix. I really think whenever people ask me for advice, you know, they pass the certified beer server, which is Cicero's online test, kind of like their first level, and they're interested in getting into the Cicero certification. Um, I always say homebrewing is the best way to go. It teaches you so much about styles, ingredients, you know, flavors. Definitely when you're starting off some off flavors, you get all of that education in there. And then for me, the, the hardest thing, the thing that was like hitting the books the most and really mm -hmm. going out of my way to like focus and study was all of the um, drafts side things. Because I've never been in a place where I'm the one like switching kegs out at a bar or really getting hands on mm -hmm. with those things. So that was a lot of... Um, first book study and now I had to like build a Sankey keg hookup at my home <laughs> um, keg grader just so I could practice I'm so used to corny kegs and like I you know when I get my hands on a Sankey I'm just not used to it so that was a, definitely a, a pointed addition that I made as a point to study and not just part of being a home brewer. Yeah, I think when I was setting up, so we just uh, upgraded all our brewing setup and we have six beers on tap at our house right now uh, and Going to set up one commercial Sankey keg in relation to then switching over to the homebrew kegs, it was like a mind-boggling experience of, wait, where's the CO2 line go? Where's the beer actually go? How does mm -hmm. this work on the keg? And how is it important to clean it so that you're not getting those off flavors or potential contamination of your beer? 
Yeah, I was gonna say it's cleaning like a Sankey coupler compared to just like the little corny keg kind of um, couplers is totally different. So much more complicated to take apart and make sure you put it back together correctly and everything. So, and on that note, when you go into these bars or breweries, now that you have that Cicero knowledge and you have that homebrew knowledge, when you get a beer on draft, are you a little bit more cautious of if you go into a certain place and you're like, ooh, I don't know if they clean their dra- beer lines? Or or are you just like rolling with it and then you can try move on if the beer is not that good? Yeah, I think so. I'll usually give a place a chance for sure, like order a beer and see what's going on. Um, I will say during the pandemic, I've been more... I'm not as likely to order something that's on draft just because I've noticed a lot of people, unfortunately, have the same keg sitting for a long time with like mm-hmm. beer that was somewhat in the line and you get like all of that infection of like sour butter. I had um, an airport beer recently that was truly wild. I couldn't believe they would even, they couldn't like smell it when they were pouring it off the uh, draft. So an airport, what is that? I haven't heard of this airport <laughs> right. that you speak of. And I'm glad you said I that know. because I had a bad airport beer experience and Shan's like, that never happens. It's going to be super rare, but I'm like, it happens more than you think where, you know, yeah. the keg's just sitting there and you wouldn't think right in an airport, but you know, different times. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I think if you're, you're ordering something more, like I was ordering an Omegan wit and I'm like, even though they probably churn through things like their Goose Island IPA and like Miller Lite on keg, I don't know how many people are ordering a wit in an airport. So, so what would be your, uh, what would be your kind of advice for those travelers out there who are into craft beers or they want to get into beer at an airport where there's multiple things on tap and how do they kind of determine what's like an off flavor that you would be like, okay, hold up. I shouldn't have any more or I might get sick? I mean, luckily with beer, you're, you're pretty much not going to get sick. Um, the, the ingredients that are used in beer, like hops are going to be an antibacterial and obviously yeast is active and cleaning things up. So pretty much as long as you don't have like a ton of mold, the first two or three days of fermentation, you're not actually going to get mm-hmm. sick from beer, which is the good news. Um, but the off flavors you look for is that butter, that sour kind of butter flavor. It's going to be a combination of bacteria that's literally turning the beer into vinegar and at the same time making the off flavor of diacetyl, which is like that movie theater popcorn kind of butter Mm -hmm. flavor. My advice, we're really lucky recently I've noticed more and more breweries, you know, popping up having a little annex in their local airport. So if you can track one of those down, like I know Stone has a couple that uh, it's like actually owned by a a brewery's tap room um, that's in the airport. So That's that's pretty cool. Um, otherwise I would say just stick to what's in bottles, but you can always get a blue moon in a bottle and <laughs> play <laughs> it good safe. enough. Yeah. <laughs> uh, before we get any further into our conversation, into our main uh, topic of discussion, do you mind just letting our listeners know for some who may not have heard the term before, what exactly is a Cicerone? A Cicerone. Thank you, James. <laughs> That's a great, a great thing. I, I'm always kind of trying to define that for myself as well. I do think it's comparable to uh, sommelier um, on the wine side. So someone who can be a steward of beer, who knows how it should be served with food, how it should be served generally, um, the different flavors of beer and what is to style and not to style. I do think Cicerone takes it a little bit further as far as knowing so much on how to serve beer. I think it does get quite technical compared to someone who just might be working in a restaurant. So the five areas of the Cicerone syllabus, I guess, would be a good way to define it. And they get deeper and deeper from certified beer server to certified Cicerone to advanced Cicerone. And then finally master would be brewing ingredients and process, 
than sensory and flavor styles and a tiny bit of history in there, but it's really just about styles, food pairing, and then finally the uh, draft service. So those are kind of the five areas that you go pretty deep into. And as you move up the levels, you have to go deeper and wider into each of those areas. Yeah. And I was actually looking at the website the other day and noticed that there are only 19 people who have passed the master Cicerone. I'm really hoping to snag like the Number 20th. 20. Number 20. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it cool to say, oh, I'm, I'm in the first, the top 20 or yeah. the first 20. So we'll see. October is inching closer every day. So is there set times during the year that you, these tests are administered or is it whenever you're ready? Yeah. So it's once a year for a master and they actually only allow, I believe, 22 people to take it mm-hmm. at once. Okay. I'm kind of wondering what if they'll even let all 20 of us, two of us do it at once this year. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so that used to be on like a lottery system, but now there's a few enough of us who want to undertake a two day, uh, like, I think it's like a 20 hour test overall <laughs> um, that it's, I think last when I took it in 2019, I think it was 18 of us um, wow. that took it together. So we will see. And yeah, it's pretty much always in October. I, they tried to reschedule it for April. Um, and then obviously that didn't happen. So it looks like it might be October again this year, hopefully. That is, and a lot of this is self-study, right? There's a lot of reading and things you have to do on your own time to, to really get the knowledge you need to pass the test. Yeah, definitely. As you're moving through the ranks, there's more coursework that is available. I mean, Cicerone offers their own courses. I've never actually taken one. But to prep for master, I did take an Aroxa um, pacing course, which was like totally life changing for me, as well as the Micromatic draft um, draft processes course, which are both like in person. I think Aroxa was four days and Micromatic was three days, um, like pretty intensive all day classes. And were those virtual or did you go somewhere physically to take those? Oh, no. Um, I went to San Diego for uh, Aroxa and then. I actually took an Uber from Newark to like Northern Pennsylvania to get oh to the micromatic one. <laughs> wow. Cause I like, I like looked at, I was like at renting a car, everything ended up being more expensive. So I just mm-hmm. most expensive Uber ride of my life, but cheaper than a flight or renting a car. So. Wow. I'm just surprised an Uber <laughs> driver would be, have that long of a route. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. I mean, but Hey, I guess anything, stuff. right? We hung yeah. out for a while. <laughs> Got to know each other pretty well. Yeah. And what would you say for you is kind of the hardest part of becoming an advanced Cicerone? I mean, I think it's, <laughs> this is maybe sounds silly, but like, it's honestly a confidence thing. It's like, I, I think it's, you go into the test day and you know, you know everything, but like it's being able to not be shaken when you get like the blind tasting panel and you don't know your number three, you know, you can't start freaking out. It's like, sitting in my confidence and knowing like, okay, I'm actually able to miss a couple of these blind ones and I'll be fine. And like when you're doing the interview, like the oral um, tests with the proctors, you know, it's not their job to shake you, but they don't want to be too easy on you. And if you let yourself kind of get freaked out, I feel like that's where you kind of lose your knowledge. And it's more just like knowing that you know what you're doing and uh, going in there with some confidence. Yeah, definitely. I uh, got a designation for meeting planning a couple of years ago and it was the same thing. You know, you sit down at that test, you know, you know it, but the second you kind of second guess something, you're like, oh shoot, do I really know yeah, this? Totally. And then you start freaking out. And 
I would say if I had my Apple watch on at the time, I'd probably think I was having a heart attack. So yeah. Right. <laughs> it gives you the signal. It's like breathe and you're like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that we've talked about on our podcast in the past is just women in brewing and the craft beer scene in general. Have you noticed any gender disparity with the Cicerone people who have gotten the designation? Like, is it mostly men? Is it kind of split 50, 50? What are your thoughts on that? Interesting. Um, so I think Ray is actually on the record. I believe he was on the Good Beer Hunting podcast talking about this, but it's actually tends to be more women who get Cicerone okay. because we often feel that we need to kind of prove ourselves to break mm-hmm. into such a male dominated industry. And so cu- coming in with some certifications under your belt and saying like, I know my stuff, yeah. it's in a way unfortunate that people feel that they need to do that, but it's also a great opportunity that it's out there to go get that certification and prove your knowledge. So double-edged with that, but it actually tends to be more women. Whereas home brewing, definitely NHC is mm-hmm. like much more male heavy um, on the balance. So different pockets of what I do is definitely a different um, proportion of male to female. That's interesting because I feel like a lot of people would assume that mostly men get the designation because home brewing and craft beer is so heavily male dominated, but that's very interesting to hear that it's you know, women tend to lean towards that more than men. Yeah, I feel like, unfortunately, men can get like a, a gold in their local homebrew competition and be like, okay, I'm going to go open a brewery now and like have that confidence. <laughs> yeah, so. I think, Mandy, you bring up a really good point. And I think I've seen, I think a few scientific journals where they actually did studies where they set up like a mock brewery and they had just Joe Schmo off the street come in to kind of talk with the founder about that breweries beers who mm-hmm. basically didn't know much about beer and then they had a cicerone come in who is a female and pick up things on the beer and to see what the who the founder would kind of listen to more and it tended to be that they would take the male's opinion over the females even though the only one qualified to make those was a female so i think that's very interesting that you brought it up as well that, you know, it's, it's something that both male and females can do, but you almost have that feeling where you kind of have to prove that you know what you're talking about, which is kind Mm -hmm. of crazy. It's, it's stupid. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, happy to see more women get it though and work toward a place where, you know, women are in the industry seen as knowledgeable resources that they are. So definitely. So before we get into talking about farmhouse ales i have one more question for you regarding the cicerone how has it helped you in home brewing and your craft beer experience great question i almost feel like it's a little opposite um, <laughs> that's what, like that's as what i, I get yeah. yeah as i get deeper into home brewing and really caring more about dialing in my recipes and things like that like um i made one of my resolutions this year to clone Dubal, like really clone it um I'm like learning so much more about um, like enzymes and things like that that aren't totally on the Cicerone syllabus, but I feel like being so deep in the style and like recipe development really, like I said, that confidence factor for when I walk into master, I feel like I'll know, I have more confidence because I've seen the results of these brewing processes, you know, now with Golden Strong's like 10 times. So um, that kind of thing, that building that confidence and like getting your hands on the ingredients, I think is really important. the one thing that Cicerone has helped me with, I definitely never had like wonderfully balanced draft lines uh, before all of this, but taking that class and um, now I have like uh, one of the like uh, adjustable fa- faucets um, for my Belgian beers and stuff. And I feel like I'm more in control of the balance of that system than I was before. Yeah, I was just saying to Shan, I think that 
before we got on uh, talking with you that I was watching some of your videos on taste and aroma and just different perceptions and everything. I'm like, that's what a Cicerone can really help you in home brewing of you were just how to describe either your off flavors and how to correct it or what's mm-hmm. good about your beer that you make. You know, I think you pinpointed in your videos just like great science behind okay if you taste this this is flavor if you smell this is more aroma and your sensory perception taking over and just the balance of it have you found since you've been a cicerone that you've kind of been able to improve your home brewing as a result or it's kind of just hand in hand um i think it's going a little bit hand in hand i would say one thing that cicerone has like pushed me to do is because you have to memorize all of those styles it definitely has pushed me out of like only brewing Belgian and um, farmhouse styles because I just want to learn about some of those styles more deeply. Like I, I've brewed a few milk stouts now and imperial stouts and things like that, just mm-hmm. to really understand the way dark malts work. Um, and so that's kind of pushed me out of my comfort zone, I guess, a little bit. But um, I wouldn't say because so much of Cicerone is self-study, it's not that it's going to teach you a ton. It's more that you need to learn a ton through whichever methods you would like to mm-hmm. yeah i think definitely opening up your horizons of like from me i tend to brew ipas because that's what i tend to drink but i'm ex- mm-hmm. slowly expanding my repertoire of blonde ales and just the whole farmhouse ale kind of scares me so mm-hmm. on the note of farmhouse ales <laughs> starting from a home brewer standpoint uh what are farmhouse ales in your opinion and what makes a good one yeah, I, I mean, like you guys said, this talk is so well-timed, our, our conversation, because I am launching tomorrow a new project called Try This Farmhouse, um, and it really has come out of the fact that I think farmhouse ales used to pretty much mean to people saisons and beer de guards, mm-hmm. which tend to not be sour, just like a drier, yeast-forward beer style. But recently, more and more breweries are putting, you know, American farmhouse ale or wild ale or... Um, Lars's book, you know, has opened the more Northern European farmhouse sales like Sati up to the public. So it's really an expanding definition. And I think that's positive. You know, it's great to learn about all these new styles, but it's also scary to the consumer because they look at a board and they see, oh, farmhouse sale. And they're like, oh, well, that could be, you know, a malt forward beer to guard that was aged in theater. So it's a little tart, or it could be like a 3% percent that's like a little bit tart and like lemon forward. So I think the whole um, idea of the project is just to get, you know, some flavor profiles down on paper to talk to brewers about what they think when they're brewing farmhouse sales and really kind of start to put some definitions out there. So people don't have to feel so intimidated when they like go to a brewery and see just like farmhouse ale either at a bottle shop or on a tap list. Yeah. And I also think for people who don't know what a farmhouse ale is and don't understand that it could be all of those different things say I go to a brewery and have a farmhouse ale and like it. And then I go to the next one. I'm like, oh, it's going to be like the one I had at X brewery. Oh, and then yeah, I get yeah. it and I'm like, what the heck is this? So I think it's important totally. for people to understand that there's different kind of styles within the overarching title. And I think it's like, it's like, so you go to brewery A and you like the farmhouse beer, you go to brewery B and, you know, they haven't quite gotten control of their wild yeast yet. It, it shouldn't totally turn you off of farmhouse sales forever. You know, like I think it's mm-hmm. keeping an open mind and learning about, you know, those yeast forward flavors and how different breweries will have different ones, but they're not all going to be the same. So don't, don't quit and go back to your hazy IPA. Keep trying yeah. farmhouse sales. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, me. But I mean, I've had some really 
wild yeast strain farmhouse ales and those i tend to gravitate towards more than those mm-hmm. ones that you just get in your bottle shop or your packy as we say and it's just the same you know multi you know saison kind of farmhouse ale that you kind of expect so when you get that kind of brewery that focuses on the yeast and what it does to the flavor of that beer i think that those are the farmhouse ones that i'm like i want you yeah, I think I mean that's what makes farmhouse really special is its history goes back to when people couldn't control the temperature in farmhouses. So basically, their saisons were you know the grains that they got from their own fields and then they're fermenting them and it's yeast going to temperatures like above eighty degrees. You know something that like an IPA would never ferment that hot. Um, so you're getting all of these flavors, all of these esters and phenols out of the yeast, um, and that's just like a really special thing and like difference than like when you're making an IPA you can know exactly what the hops are going to be exactly what the grain bill is going to be and keep that yeast in check and have like a really reproducible beer so in your farmhouse beers that you like to make at home um what would you suggest to those home brewers that want to start to kind of go into that farmhouse ale range what would you suggest for maybe getting them started with grain bill or just some things to think about when they're um, gonna make that farmhouse yeah, I mean, I, I think a great place to start that's pretty approachable is a really dry Saison. So I love the uh, French Saison yeast. Um, 3711 from Y yeast is my go-to. And you can really just do basically a total Pilsner malt base with like 10% flaked oats and wheat for a little bit of body. Um, you know, ferment, let it ferment pretty hot and get all of that yeast character. I would say start it cool and let it kind of ramp up a little bit. But um, it's actually a really easy brew day. You're going to use a little saws or steering golding hops just for like a little earthy herbal note. But it's really all about that yeast character. And this um, 3711 just dry, dries beers out. It gets super dry at the end and um, has a lot of like white pepper and a little bit of like a lemon um, flavor instead of so... Sometimes um, farmhouse ales can be like a little more intense and have like a lot of that earthiness and... Um, like really heavy clove and things like that. And this one I feel like really keeps the flavors pretty in check for Saison and just is so good at drying things out. Yeah, I think that's a great recommendation. Um, I was thinking about doing a farmhouse and I'm like, you know, there's so many, it's kind of overwhelming. There's so many directions, but I think you kind of, in this case, you start with the yeast and then from there Mm -hmm. it's, you know, you let the yeast, yeah, you build it out. Yeah, and I mean, these days you can dry hop anything. So (laughs) I've had plenty of dry hop Saisons, which are delicious and, uh, Beer to Guard's kind of like Cezanne's cousin that's a little more malt forward. Um, so if you like a darker, you know, some of those like graham cracker, rye bread flavors in your beer, you can totally start with the Beer to Guard. Um, but starting simple and then figuring out how to add things in, I think is a nice way for a home brewer to get get into it. And what ABV do you like to stay around in your farmhouse ales? Like, um, It varies pretty widely, but I would say the one that I like brew the most is just under 8%, so like a 7-8 usually. Mm-hmm. Um, so not exactly like an all-day sipper, but not not too crazy. Yeah. Not I'd have to and be okay. Or Shane's yeah. like, that's James's all-day sippers is yeah. the 7s and 8s. <laughs> In our house, that's the typical ABV, so. <laughs> when I get like a 4.5 or 5, I'm like, ooh, this is a session, yeah. It's like, no, it's like, no, that's like your average. Yeah. And I made some that are like just under four, like a three, eight that like I put some, I feel like when they're that low alcohol, you need to like put a little more flavor 
into it just because the yeast doesn't have as much to work with. So like I, I put some ginger in there. Ooh. It's very great little ginger table beer. That sounds delicious. I love ginger yeah. beer. What would you, or what do you think is your favorite or I guess, I don't know. People don't like to say the word favorite when they're talking about craft beer, but so how can you pick you, Shannon? <laughs> I know, <laughs> but in terms of like something people can buy off of the shelf or if they want to taste or try a farmhouse, what would you recommend someone go pick up? Yeah. I mean, I would say the like classic starting point that's pretty um, widely available would be Cezanne DuPont. Okay. It's not that Frenchy, so it's not on your palate. It's going to be a little more full. It's not quite so dry, but it definitely has those like lemon meringue pie flavors and has some really nice floral um, floral notes going on. And it's, I would say it's more approachable than a lot of those like American wild farmhouse beers. <laughs> um, so that's like definitely a good place to start. Um, Funk Works also makes a Saison that's way more tame um, as is Tank 7 from Boulevard, but they're really widely available. So I would say just like a not sour Saison is a nice place to start. Um, just to, you know, get, if you're usually a stout drinker, an IPA drinker, it'll kind of get you into that yeast realm. Oh, Hennepin is another pretty widely available one that's really calm. Um, Hennepin from Oma Gang. So I think that's, those four. Yeah. I think that's the only farmhouse I may have actually had. Yeah, that's <laughs> the only Oma farmhouse Gang. you've had. Although you had one in Texas that was a wild yeast one, and you took a sip, and you're like, ooh, lemongrass, ooh, lemony, uh, I'm good. You took like a one <laughs> Was that from Jester King? Uh, yeah, so, yes, yes, it, it was. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah that's that's kind of the farmhouse everyone when they go to Texas wants to get their hands on for sure. But another th- great thing about the farmhouse ales is they seem to always be in bottles, but now it's like a 50-50 split I'm finding in like the stores, which is just great mm-hmm. to see, you know, that style. You know, like it gives you almost like a reminiscent of the old times where everything was bottles and now it's all cans. And I think maybe now yeah. it's more because of the can shortage that they're resorting mm-hmm. back to, you know, those bigger bomber style bottles, which is kind of cool. Um, would you suggest if you're home brewing, do you think the container matters when you're brewing a farmhouse or that's just kind of your personal preference? So something that's important to the style, perfect question, um, is that it's a, a raised um, carbonation. So you're going to get like about three volumes in there. So you do need a heavier bottle for sure. Um, I mean, I think pretty much any homebrew bottle would work, but uh, you don't you don't want anything exploding yeah. <laughs> uh, going on. I actually usually use, I have some 750s that are like capable. They're not corking cage that I, I really like to use because uh, you want, with these styles, I like to bottle condition them. So give them some time and like a nice big heavy bottle that's not going to break under any circumstances. Um, if you have a canner, I think it's possible. You just might miss out on some of those bottle conditions flavors and it's hard to get such a high carbonation into a can especially at home absolutely and then you get to pop it open when you know you yeah. can actually visit with your friends and be like oh this needs to rest for 20 minutes and like you seriously like no let's pour it right away when you're friends with wine you're like oh we gotta let this rest so let's have your beer first um yeah no i think that i just had um a tasting like a virtual tasting and I opened one of the big chimes and it's so nice to pop a cork. I totally miss that. Tank seven used to have a big cork on it. Uh and now they just have it in cans mostly, but they still have the small bottles. Um Duval used to be corked. Mm-hmm. Nostalgic for that. Yeah, there's something very satisfying about the sound of a cork popping. <laughs> yeah, and it feels like you're like, oh this is a beer that was ten bucks, but it feels like I'm popping Fancy. a thirty dollar bottle of champagne. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
It really escalates it. I was always the one who Definitely. was tasked with popping it open and on purpose because it was entertainment value because I couldn't quite get the cork off in the right way. And now I don't have that issue and I'm kind of sad. <laughs> you don't want have to. you guys ever tried uh, sabering them? Uh, we but- have not, but our friend has. Uh, it was yeah. very iffy experience. It's, it's a 50-50 <laughs> shot depending on the day on whether it's successful well, he was, uh, or it's a uh, couple of beers in when he first tried. So we were all a little nervous about it, but it was successful. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say usually it usually doesn't end up too bad. So that's always a fun fun party trick for sure. Yes, he definitely loves to show that off when he gets yes. the So Nick, if you're listening to this episode, then cheers to you, my friend. <laughs> Uh, before we wrap up the farmhouse, I know you mentioned at the top about your project that's going to be starting tomorrow. Can you just kind of explain like where's that going to be housed? How can people find it? What's what's the deal with that? Yeah, so it's going to be mostly based off of my website, which is beersofunity.com. Um, there's also going to be a newsletter element to it. So if you don't want to be constantly going to my website every Thursday, I'll <laughs> send out updates. <laughs> um, but I've already talked to close to 20 different um, brewers of farmhouse ales uh, just about how they think the style should be defined, how they actually go about making theirs. Um, so there are some tips for home brewers if that's what you're into, or if you just want to look up a, you know, a brewery or a beer before you go taste it. It's all about the flavor profiles they're going to, they're trying to get to with their beers. And one really important part that I hope people do <laughs> um, is I love people to use the hashtag try this farmhouse when they post about the different farmhouse beers they're drinking because it helps me discover new breweries to talk to and i think if we could have like a really big instagram place where everyone can look at this hashtag and see all the different farmhouse beers out there and what people that aren't just me and the brewers are saying about them you know it might make people a little more ready to go out to the bar or the bottle shop and pick one up like i said no offense to ipa drinkers but just as something a little different (laughs) none taken we're always looking to expand i mean like you get the bitterness or you're very citrus forward with ipas so it's good to expand the horizons i've learned shannon's taught me well yeah you can always order one post it with a hashtag and then get an ipa after you know no one no one says you to drink only farmhouse sales when you're yeah absolutely <laughs> and as a little teaser on this with the breweries you've already spoken to for this project have you found that their farmhouses have kind of varied based on region or is it just the individual brewers style themselves yeah, so it's really cool because I've talked to some like bigger brewers like um Oma Gang and Sly Fox, you know, are huge commercial brewers like churning this out. Sly Fox makes a grisette that goes all over the East Coast. And then I've talked to some really small breweries like um Sigard in Oklahoma and Plan B uh, here in New York, uh, upstate New York, that are just, you know, trying to use local ingredients, only using wild yeast that they have, you know, found themselves being really artistic going back to like what it might be like to brew in France back in the day when these were like first being made so it's just really interesting the diversity I guess you could say and how how you can produce these beers and what that ends up doing to their flavor profile yeah absolutely and I know a lot of our following is also international so any of you listeners who are home brewers or even breweries that are making farmhouse sales make sure you do that hashtag on Mandy's website so you maybe you know internationally there's some differences there too that'd be great to find out yeah I mean I can't wait to we've had a trip plan to France to go to some of these farmhouse breweries since it was supposed to be April 8th 2020 so obviously <laughs> that's been on the back burner <laughs> um, yeah but uh definitely I want to get international and to that point I am like featuring everyone who uses it in my story and stuff so people who 
are who are in America can learn more about international breweries if they use that hashtag. So um, that'd be really cool. Awesome. Well, it sounds like that's going to be a great resource for people looking to learn more about farmhouses and really understand the style. Yeah, looking hopefully. forward to that. <laughs> Thank okay, you. Yeah. Okay. Before we wrap up, we wanted to play a little game with you. And I know we didn't forewarn you about this. So, <laughs> dun, dun, dun. but one of the um, fun things about, or I think is fun about being a Cicerone and having that knowledge is, is beer and food pairings. Heck yeah. Oh yeah. So I thought I would just give you, we'll do three different types of food. And okay. if you can suggest what type of beer you think would be best with those. Oh yeah, this is like a practice, a practice test. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to get you ready for that master test. <laughs> Definitely. Okay. So the first one is nachos. Okay. Nachos. This one's a little out there. I guess it depends on how flavor intense your nachos are, but I think a German dunkel would be really nice with nachos because it's more malt forward beer. So it's going to like kind of complement that corn chip going on, but it also has, you know, some flavor some heft behind it so you know any kind of no matter how sharp or crazy your cheese is it's not going to get too overpowered and can cut really nicely through that fat it's a nice lager with a lot of carbonation to kind of keep your your palate clean and you can finish your whole plate of nachos without uh feeling too too overwhelmed by flavor or too uh weighed down so yeah i think that's what i would suggest if you can find a dunkel near you that's a, a great one now i really want some nachos because that sounds so good <laughs> Um, one of the big foods here in Massachusetts oh, yeah. for the summer is lobster. Lobster. And we are definitely going to be eating a lot of lobster. So what do you suggest we get when we go out to our local lobster trap? So are you just eating like a straight lobster? Yeah, just steamed it... like lobster. You got to crack open with the hot melted Ooh, butter. butter. Hot melted butter oh and gosh. some lemon. <laughs> yes, that makes me want to like drive up to Portland right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think something like a Belgian Golden Strong would be super nice with that. I mean, it's going to be... You know, I, I gravitate towards Dubal for this because it has a little bit of that sweetness, which you want to bring out in the lobster. That's what's so great about lobster is that it's like naturally that like sweet juiciness. Um, but it's also nice and dry and super carbonated again for that like kind of cleansing effect. And it feels a little fancy champagne-ish. You know, it has that mm -hmm. nice big white head. So, you know, you're sitting down for a whole lobster. You want to feel a little fancy and pour that out. Um, I think, yeah, it would resonate really nicely with the sweetness, that little hint of like green apple you can get on um, on a Belgian golden strong would be you know kind of a nice contrast to all that sweetness and butter that you're getting from the lobster so I think that'd be a really fancy little lunch pairing sounds good I think when we went to the Cape uh, a while ago and I got oysters and Shan's like oh I'm gonna quiz you what beers would be good with oysters and I'm like well stouts have always been good but then I had a pilsner uh -huh. and the pilsner was great with it Am I right or wrong on that? Was that a terrible pairing or was it just me with my individual taste buds that love those two style beers with oysters? Oh no, I think that's great. I mean, especially some of the pilsners that can have the kind of like herbal lemony hops to them. Like it's really nice and light and bright and oysters can be so light and bright, especially if you're using like a mignonette on them. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, stouts kind of are more of like the contrast approach where I think um, a pilsner would be more of like that brightness and like elevation approach. Okay. Good job, James. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So my last one is also a little bit out there, but it's one of James's favorites and we're going to the dessert area. Oh yeah. And this is also something that's popular in, in Boston in the North end, uh, our chocolate cannolis. What should we have with our dessert? Chocolate cannolis. 
Okay, so those are they're like filled with what kind of cheese is in it? Marscapone, right? Yeah, it's like a marscapone. Sometimes there's like a ricotta mix. Mm-hmm. Okay. I feel bad because I'm like going Belgian again, but well, what do you think? You're not going farmhouse like on us, are we? <laughs> no, I feel like I feel like there's way too much going on with the chocolate no. and like that. You know what could actually be really nice with that is just like um like a, a milk stout of some kind or like a more of a British style one. Or you know what? I would like now that I'm thinking about it. Uh Sam Smith, Taddy Porter. I don't know if you guys have seen that. It's a bigger kind of bottle with a red label. Um but it's an English style porter. So the yeast flavor is going to come off as like a little bit of like cherry forward and like a little raisiny going on, which I think would be super nice with chocolate and that like kind of heavier cheese, you know, kind of giving you like a fruit cheesecake kind of vibe. And it's also not too high in alcohol or too heavy. So with such a rich dessert, you know, it would still keep things kind of light, but complement those chocolate flavors in the grist of the porter and then that yeast flavor I think would really nicely play like add a new kind of flavor to the dish adding some fruitiness to your uh cannoli shell and your cheese and your chocolate Mm. that sounds good yeah and so the last one we have for you being from New York and we frequent New York a lot Chan's brother's out of New York so we we tend to get some pies out in New York or pizza, nice. as we call it here in Massachusetts. <laughs> like, we get pies? No, we don't. <laughs> I was like, apple pies? Pizza? <laughs> You're like, oh, good. We got apple pies coming up. <laughs> I'm just trying to use, you know, your brother's terminology of grab a pie or grab a slice. Like, Grab a slice. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what would you recommend with just your standard traditional. cheese? Traditional pizza. I mean, this. I think it's hard to beat just like a, a little bit of a heavier body pilsner um, with pizza. I think it's just like, an, a, you know, that beer and pizza kind of classic thing. I wouldn't go American light lager. I'd kind of go more toward like a German Hellas or a German Pilsner that would have some hop character and a little more malt body to it. But I just think keeping a light beer, you know, the tomato sauce is pretty light, even though the cheese and bread can be a little heavy. And like pizza crust resonates with the grist of like a Pilsner beer, like perfectly. Sometimes when I'm using sensory and describing Pilsner, instead of saying like bread dough, I'll say pizza crust because I think it's a little bit, you know how pizza crust is like sometimes a little bit not browned and things like that. It's like a little different than a slice of bread. Um, So I think those two match made in heaven. And it's also really easy to get a Pilsner in most places. So you you never have to miss out on your, uh, (laughs) no matter what pizza restaurant you go to, you usually have some kind of Pilsner. Yeah, my mind's blown. I thought I was for sure leading you down the IPA path on this one because it seems seems everybody says pizza and you got to get that nice piney IPA with pizza, but apparently not from the Cicerone. So let's go with the pro. Everyone teach their own, but uh, I I would just never want to put that pine. I feel like it'd be a little overpowering on your, especially just your classic mozzarella. You know, it would totally wipe that off your palate. It's good to know. True. And my mind's blown. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay well before i go pick up james's mind off the floor uh, <laughs> where can our listeners find you i know you mentioned you have a website your instagram just kind of what do you want to plug yeah and beers with mandy everywhere including my little tiktok that i just started Ooh. it's been really fun <laughs> i was finally like why do i feel like this is so, dor- so dorky i should just go for it and it's been fun we've gotten people um, saying like start a tiktok and we're like ah. You don't want to see us I, doing TikToks. We're awkward I enough. Know. <laughs> it feels it feels like an, an easier place to like be goofy than Instagram for me. That is very um, true. But yeah, Instagram, and then uh, hopefully on the hashtag try this farmhouse. Okay, great. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. And it's been a lot of fun. I think our listeners are going to really enjoy your project that's coming out. Awesome. Thank you guys for having me. Well, thank you for listening to this week's episode. As an independent podcast, your support means we stay that way. So please follow us on Instagram at Double Hot Beat Podcast. Tag your friends on your favorite posts and episodes. And also, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. This really helps us get new listeners and get our name out there. So we really appreciate that. And thank you again for listening. This has been Double, Double Hot Beat. Beat. Catch, Catch you on, on the Bruce side. side.